Would you stand and let's read the word of God, part of it, of our chapter this, this morning, in honoring the Lord and honoring his word, which we do, and we will continue to do. So in Genesis chapter 37, beginning this series on destiny, and this morning, knowing the end from the beginning, chapter 37. So in verse 1, now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah, the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for preserving your word for us. And Lord, today, right now, we're here gathered in this room, online, wherever it might be, your word is alive and powerful. Every time we read it, every time we, we hear it, every time we study it, it's you, Lord, that has given it to us that you might speak to our hearts. It's alive and powerful. It can divide between the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And on and on go the need, the necessity, the importance, and really the desire to taste and see that the Lord is good. We love you, we bow before you, and we humble ourselves, give us ears to hear, and not only to hear, not hear only, but to do the things that you've, you're speaking to us about this morning. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Okay, you can be seated. So the book of Genesis that we're going to close out over these next few weeks, it's the first 11 chapters are four events. So you have creation, flood, fall, and nations. So that's the first 11 chapters. From chapter 12 through chapter 50, you have four people. And we've been doing series on these people, the faith of Abraham, which we call, we call journey. The faith of Isaac, we looked at family. The faith of Jacob, we looked at uncertainty. So now we're starting these last 14 chapters to talk about this whole idea of destiny. In the next few weeks, we're going to be so enriched by this incredible story of Joseph. Now, I have to tell you that I've read ahead. I know the end from the beginning. Of all the stories in the Bible, I could read this a million times and every time be moved to tears because it's a profound story, a true story, a God story about a young teenager that God took to use in, in forwarding his story, history. It is, it is not only human, it is love divine. So the next, this, this chapter sets the stage, lays the background that takes us through the rest of the book of Genesis and then into Exodus and the rest of the Bible. The word destiny means the events that will necessarily happen to a particular person in the future. It could be a thing also, but for, for our study today, the events that will necessarily happen to a particular person in the future. So here's the outline. Joseph, in this chapter, Joseph was loved by his father. That's the beginning. And he who loved, so loves. That's the end. Joseph was hated by his brothers. 
He who was hated and rejected forgives with kindness and acceptance. That's the end of the story. Finally, Joseph was no more. He who was dead, listen, he who was dead still lives. Obviously, it's a foreshadowing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Joseph was loved by his father, and he who loved so loves. Not just at the end, but throughout his journeys in Egypt. So I'm immediately struck by this verse. Notice, Jacob dwelt in the land with his fa- where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob, period, Joseph. That's, that's interesting to me. Joseph being 17 years old, a teenager. Well, what about Jacob's 91 years preceding Joseph's birth? Don't they count? Absolutely. But God, whatever God deemed important to us in our faith, he has preserved it for us in his word. Verse 1 is part of that, but go back. And they're not complete accounts, but God gives to us his inspired word that our faith might be put in him to a greater and greater degree. And now we get to Jacob, Joseph. So God is moving his story forward in in his bringing about a promised, listen, a promised eternal destiny that was through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now Joseph, and finally in in the son, capital S, Jesus Christ. We've been looking at that all the way through Genesis. God gave a promise to Abraham, and now he's forwarding that in history. Now, another spoiler alert. This 17-year-old teenager who was loved by his father but hated by his brothers, this favored son whose own brothers conspired to kill him, sold him into slavery and watched callously as their little brother went shackled to Egypt, the brothers relieved they would see him no more. And for some 23 plus years, I believe this Joseph, as he's growing there from 17 in the years that followed, he, I think that he has this anguish of sorrow as he begins year after year to sort of file that away. Will I ever see them again? Makes me want to cry just saying that. Turns out, Joseph was God's man through whom he, God, would save the very family that rejected him. Would save the very family that hated him, the brothers. The ones that conspired such evil against him. And then in the end, Joseph did see them. And when he did, he yearned for them and wept over them. When he did, he searched their hearts to do them good. He was kind to them. Joseph forgave them. Joseph held nothing against them, proclaiming what are some of the most profound words ever uttered, knowing what happened from the beginning. He said this in Genesis 50, 20, but as for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good 
in order to bring about as it is this day, as we're standing here, brothers, to save many people alive. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That was 23 plus years in the making, in the heart of Joseph. It was Joseph who revealed himself to them when he didn't have to. It's Jesus all over the place. It's Joseph who reconciled them to himself when he didn't have to. It's Jesus from beginning to end. Our destiny is promised and preserved through the one man, not Joseph, Jesus Christ. Joseph knew he was part of a bigger story of destiny yet to come. That's why I read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. There's more to come. And he knew it, as did Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You see, God is faithfully forwarding his story of eternal salvation through the events that will necessarily happen to one particular person in the future, that is Jesus, the beloved Son of God. That's our destiny. I always think of Star Wars, it's your destiny. And I say, read the book of Luke. <laughs> in Joseph, God has given us a humanly divine foreshadowing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to be gathering to our hearts through these next 14 chapters. I love this hymn. In Christ alone, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Genesis 37. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. Now, these were his, these were his, his um, half-brothers, not his full brothers. They were through Bilhah, who was Rachel's maidservant, and Zilpah, who was Leah's maidservant. Leah had six sons. Rachel had two, Joseph and his younger brother, Benjamin. These each... Bilhah and Zilpah had two each, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So here's Joseph. He's not exactly nurturing their relationship. He's going to go tattletale on him to, the dad, to dad. Brought a bad report to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph, verse 3, more than all his children. So Joseph's not really helping it either. <laughs> There's favoritism going on. There's a love there that he's expressing. And clearly, and he makes his tunic of many colors. Now that word, it would mean literally a coat with long sleeves, which would point to the ruler, whereas short sleeves would be the worker. So the idea here is that Jacob may be intending to make Joseph the heir of everything when he's not his oldest son. So that could add to the mix here. And what happens is, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. Imagine growing up in a home where all your brothers are hating you more and more and more. 
just like Cain, who began harboring in his heart ill will toward Abel. And it resulted in killing him. The seeds of jealousy and hatred, they were continued to sow in their hearts would lead to them conspiring together to kill him. And so there is an application for us. Knowing the end from the beginning. The end of unrepented anger, hatred, jealousy may well be murder. And Jesus said that. An offense, jealousy, anger begin as small seeds, but if allowed to germinate and grow, will become hatred and bitterness. Not good. (laughs) These need to be nipped at the bud, so they say. And if rooted, uprooted. Hebrews says this, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest there be any... Let's the root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Bitterness begins to be seen. And he's saying, look carefully. Don't fall short of the grace of God and how we need the grace of God in these areas. And we be careful we don't fall short of that, allowing God's grace to help us. So Jesus, Joseph was hated by his brothers. He who was hated and rejected forgives with kindness and acceptance. We'll get that. We'll get to that. Notice verse 4 again. When his brothers saw that his father loved him more than all, his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably. That's where it starts. Notice. Now, Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. So he's going to tell them anyway. There we were. Binding sheaves in the field, then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. (laughs) And his brother said to him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? Notice, so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So it doesn't stop there. By the way, God's giving him these dreams. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers. You'd think, no. And said, look, I've had dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the stars, 11 stars, bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to earth before you? And his brothers envied him. Now, envy is wanting evil on someone because of what they have. Jealousy is the evil of wanting what someone else has, but when you see someone else having something you don't, then it's the intention to be evil to them. This is why Jesus himself was crucified, because of envy. And Pilate knew that. He knew the lying hypocrisy of them wanting him crucified. They were envious of They now come to that point of wanting evil, his brothers now, on Joseph, as did his own brethren, Jesus himself in being crucified. And so, and his brothers envied him. So Joseph dreams this dream. It's from God. It's a dream that God is revealing to him of the future. His brothers and fathers know exactly what the dreams meant. They weren't wondering what it meant. They knew. They said it. Joseph's brothers, it just fueled the fire 
of what was already there in the heart. Why? For his dreams and for his words. So they hated, when they killed Jesus as here, they hated the truth. They didn't want, they wanted no connection with Joseph and the truth as with Jesus. When, with Jesus, they sought to suppress the truth. They did everything they could to challenge and deny and silence the truth. We're talking Joseph and, more importantly, Jesus. This is what was going on. Until the only thing they could do was try and kill the truth. Again, Pilate saw right through it. These God-given dreams almost got Joseph killed. Look at verse 19. We'll get to this again. But then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. They're out with the flocks, and, they, and Joseph finds him. Here he is traipsing across the valley there. And it says, look, the, this dreamer is coming. So this stuck like, like they, they hated this. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into the, some pit, and we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. Now, later, Joseph calls this to mind when his brothers unknowingly are standing before him, unknowingly to them. In Genesis 42, 9, it says, Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, and so, <laughs> it's great. Joseph says, you're spies. And he begins being troublesome to them for a while, but I believe he's testing their hearts to do them good. You're spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And we'll get that when we get there. That's, that's part of the end. Joseph does not seem to have many, much smarts here. Would you agree with that? Is he just excited to share what God showed him? I would be. Is he so naive as to be oblivious to the jealousy of his brothers? Maybe. Was he to them a favored, spoiled brat? Possibly. They're, he's rubbing it in. Probably a mix of all these things. But, but notice his father rebuked him, but he kept it in his heart. Why? Because Jacob himself had a dream that changed the whole direction of his life. He's there fleeing from Esau and leaving his home, and he's there sleeping with a rock as a pillow. Let me tell you, if you have a rock as a pillow, you're probably going to have a nightmare. <laughs> he had a dream. And he saw the heavens open, a ladder coming down, angels ascending, descending on it. He wakes up and goes, surely God was in this place. I knew it not. And it changed his life from then on. No different here with Joseph. He sees this dream. Jacob saying he rebukes him, but he kept his heart because he himself experienced something. He dreamed and it changed the course of his life. What is about to happen to Joseph is beyond my ability to comprehend. It is anything but a dream. It's a full-on nightmare. How did Joseph ever endure these things? What gave him the strength to keep going? What helped him to keep hoping? I believe, at least in part, and maybe totally, because he knew he was loved by his father. To know that you are loved by a heavenly father 
<laughs> is to keep you going. For 17 years, I believe his father never stopped confirming his love to his heart. Yes, he may have spoiled his beloved son. He obviously made his sons jealous and murderously mad. But it was no secret that he loved Joseph. And it's no secret that we are loved by God. It's no secret. This is the beginning, the middle, and the end. God loves me. Romans, Paul says it well. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. What's God pouring out? His love. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the who? Ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his, notice, own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You want to know how much God loves you and the continuing of it and the pouring out of it? You got to look to the cross. He demonstrated it. It's no secret. And we need to know that love more and more and more. I love Ephesians. For this reason, Paul, I bow my knees to the Father, here it is, of our Lord Jesus Christ, for, from whom the whole family, is, heaven and earth, is named. He's our Father. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, not grace, glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Now, here it is. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in what? Love. Be able to comprehend all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. To know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to keep you from, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundant of all you ask or think. Through the power that works in This is God who loves us. No secret about it. So I want to divert a little bit on something that's been on my heart. And I've been just myself thinking through quite often. And I want to speak to you parents, you grandparents, you guardians. Listen, pour truth and the love of God into the minds and hearts of those precious ones that God has given to you. Maybe it's students. Wherever your, your place of influence and impact, you pour God's love and God's truth into their minds and into their hearts. They can never hear it too much. It's the gospel. And then following that from beginning to end. It's not complicated. Jesus loves you, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. There are so many competing voices that must be counterattacked by the voice of God's love and truth revealed through the living and powerful Word of God, through the Spirit of God and the gospel. Please. Keep the Bible, the number one book in your home of reading and reflecting and also referring to. 
Deuteronomy 6.4 is the Shema, which is central to Judaism. It's central to our heritage. It says this, Hear, O Israel, which is the Shema means here. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, we've heard that, and many of you have heard that, and that is a powerful central verse in all of Judaism. But listen, note what comes after that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you, you shall what? Shall be in your heart, and then you shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, non-conflict times. Talk about it. You shall bind them as sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless before your eyes. Everything you're doing, everything you're seeing is filtered and, and, for, and, and um, empowered by the word of God. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. God help us. God remind us again and again and again. What takes the most airtime in your home? It's going to be a reflection of what takes the most airtime in your heart, as well as for me in my home and my heart. Charlotte and I watched a documentary this week entitled The Social Dilemma. It sounds the alarm in exposing what is going on in technology monopolies through social media. Google, Facebook, Twitter, and many others. And it's very sober. I'll leave it to you if you want to watch it. It will challenge the way you look at your phone. I've read several books over the last three to four years on this and related subjects. Some of the titles, TechWise Family, The Relational Soul. Oh, what social media is doing to relationships is devastating. Distracted, subtitle, the erosion of attention and the coming dark age. Another one is called the shallows, what the internet is doing to our brains. If you want my stack, I have a picture of my stack, I'll send it to you. Just email me. Parents of young children, have you given serious, critical thought as to why and when you will put a device in the hands of your children. When you do, whatever device you put into their hands has the potential to ever so subtly, ever so deceptively corrupt their hearts in opposition to the way and the truth and the life. It is that sobering. To the very life that God wants us to experience and enjoy. Parents, grandparents, guardians, do you know what your children are absorbing as you allow them screen time on social media? I hope I'm being uncomfortable because it makes me uncomfortable. I hope you are because I am. <laughs> parents, guardians, do you know what your children are being taught in school? You better find out because there is a whole lot of subtle, godless indoctrination of your children's minds that is, in, listen, I'm not overstating this, is in demonic opposition to a biblical worldview. Do you have a biblical worldview yourself? 
Do you even know what that is? Now, the importance of having a biblical worldview has risen to the forefront again because of our CCS training program where we're coupled with Western Seminary. One of the first classes is Foundations in Biblical Worldview. It's taught by a man named Derek Hebert. He, puts, he says this, Everyone has a big story upon which they place their faith that answers the big questions of life. Where did I come from? Who am I? Which would be personal identity. What are my problems? What are the problems in the world? What is the solution? Where am I going? What is, in other words, what's my future? What's the death? Now, are these not questions that are relevant throughout life? Particularly now. Where do I come from? Who am I? What's going to shape that view of your children, but not only them, yourself? Because the foundation is what you are believing about the truth, and that's where you act out. That's where you see things. That's how you filter everything is your worldview. That's what a worldview is. This is a biblical worldview. Here's a quote. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart, unquote. History, for the Christian, is God's story. From beginning to end. Now, the importance of having a biblical worldview has risen to the forefront also because we are blessed now to have a chapter of a classical conversation. Siri meeting on Wednesday, first one, last Wednesday. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's just another uh, biblical worldview curriculum that's being taught to our children when they're younger and then throughout high school. I think of... Christian and Janelle Gregg, who, I don't know if they're watching online, I'm sorry, I didn't tell you I was going to, I should have. And they have a passion to equip parents to teach their children apologetics or reasons for our faith or a biblical worldview. Have you ever heard of critical theory? Do you know what it is? I will tell you it's an opposition to a biblical worldview. Now, you may not agree with me on that, and we could talk about that. But in what I've studied, I just, this is about a month now, ongoing now, just reading and trying to understand this thing, critical race theory and others, others that come out of that. It's not biblical. In fact, it's dangerous. I'm deeply, as you know, concerned for our nation I pray we are not past the point of no return. Should the Lord tarry in his return? Our children are the future of our nation. The 40 days of prayer for America beginning this Thursday, I hope that you'll, you'll join and take that to heart. William Booth, who was the founder of Salvation Army, said, quote, work as if everything depended upon work and pray as if everything depended upon prayer, unquote. I say, Amen. We're not trying to hide in our closets and hope everything. No, we're also working with everything we can to do everything we can. One of those, I believe, is voting. But part of that, you got to know why you're voting for who you're voting for. His wife, <laughs> Catherine, said this, if we are to better the future, we must disturb the present. Those together are two great quotes. So let's continue our story here. Now, Joseph then is sent by his father to seek the welfare of his brothers. Just like Jesus said, he came to seek and save those that are lost. It's a parallel picture of a greater one. 
And so his brothers went to the feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are, you, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, here I am. Then he said to him, please go and see if it's well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and he went to Shechem. Verse 15, now a certain man found him and there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him saying, what are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, they have departed from here for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brother's nose and found them in Jotham. Jesus said, Luke 19, 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost, that that might be found. He gave a parable of the hundred sheep and one's lost. You go and leave the 99 and go find that one. You go find him. And when you find him, you put him on your, and you bring him back, bring him back. That's what Jesus does. So verse 18, they conspire against by his brothers, he's conspired against. Now, when they saw him afar off, before he came near them, they conspired against him, notice, to kill him. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. They got a whole thing figured out. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. Now, we'll see that that didn't happen. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers, they stripped, him, they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. And you can just picture them in anger, ripping that thing off that represented favoritism or rulership or heirship. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it, and they sat down to eat a meal. Now, this is crazy. This is like, how hard can you get? Uh, well, let's order up a little uh, Panera. And we know later on in the story, they saw the anguish of his soul. Do you think, Joe? oh, well, would you please let me out? No, it was for Joseph. It was so ridiculously difficult. And he's in anguish and crying and begging them, don't do this, don't do this. Wondering if he's going to live the day out. And they're having lunch. Wow. <sighs> they stripped him, sat down to have a meal lifted up their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, and on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brother, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. So there was a little sanity coming to the conversation in some ways. Then the then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Just as Jesus was conspired against by his brethren, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, thrown on a cross, crucified, dead, and ascended into the lowest parts of the earth, which is called death, Hades. And there are a multitude of passages concerning this cons these conspiring evil 
Jewish leaders. And then Judas is a part of that. Demonic. The devil. The third thing on our is Joseph was no more. He who was dead still lives. So Reuben tears his clothes because it's too late. Notice verse 29. Then Reuben returned to the pit. And indeed Joseph was not in the pit. And he tore his clothes and he returned to his brother and said, the lad is no more and where shall I go? In other words, I can't. it's too late. He was hoping to pull him back out and bring him back. Too late. Done. In other words, they did this horrible thing and they would live with their guilt for a long, long time. In fact, until they met Joseph and even afterwards. Then they take Joseph's tunic to try and cover what they've done. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, they, they put, you know, tried to cover themselves in fig leaves because of their guilt. So they took Joseph's tunic and they stripped Jesus of all his, he was wearing. Killed a kid of the goats and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Now this is a whole plot that's got a little out of hand in some ways, but they're going to deceive their father. Do you know whether it's your son's tunic or not? How could they? You know, you just... And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. Now imagine Jacob. It's my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn in pieces. Interesting that Jacob deceived his father early on. How? By having a goat killed and pre preparing it for his father. Deceived him and getting a blessing. Just interesting. I don't know how that connects to anything, but it's interesting. And now, notice, then J Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth of his waist, on his waist, mourned for his son many days. You can imagine, many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Joseph tore his clothes to mourn and to weep. This is the beginning. Meanwhile, Joseph is sold in Egypt. Very much alive to God. God didn't take his eyes off him for a millisecond. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer, which means a eunuch, of Pharaoh, and captain of the guard. I'll capture this in three statements. To those who loved Jacob, his father and others, there was grief. Deep, deep grief. To those who hated and rejected Joseph, there was guilt, deep guilt. For Joseph himself, from beginning to end, God was there. God was there. Joseph's life in Egypt is an amazing testimony of this young teenager who feared God like Daniel. Joseph's love for God was seen as love for others. As you look at his life in Egypt, which we will. In fact, there's nothing of Daniel, Joseph, and the other one is Jesus. Three men in the Bible of which nothing is really written that would seem to 
put a little blot on their character. Joseph's one of them. And as we look at his life in Egypt, he who was a slave respected and cared for his master. He who was in prison respected and cared for the prison warden. When he was tempted, he refused to sin against God. When in a position of great power, he never took advantage of people. Rather, he served them. It's just a picture of Jesus all over the place, all over the place again. He did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for all. It's because of these things and so many others that God, being with him, gave him great favor. And it's interesting that some of the greatest things that happened favor-wise from God were through dreams. Interpreting dreams be a means of God exalting Joseph in Egypt. We find that he interpreted the dreams for the butler, the baker, and the candlestick maker. No, not really. The butler and baker. And he's thinking, okay, I just did this. And they forget him in prison. He interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh, which got him released from prison. And then through just what God gave him in that gifting or whatever it was, he became second to Pharaoh because of God's favor on him, because he feared God, he loved God, and he lived his life for others. So destiny, the events that will necessarily happen to a particular person in the future, God faithfully forwarded his story of eternal salvation through the events that necessarily happen to one particular person, and his name is Jesus. So Jesus, who is love, loves you. He loves you. That's beginning to the end. Jesus, who was hated, despised, and rejected, died to forgive you from beginning to end. (laughs) And Jesus, who died for you, ever lives to give you life forever. He ever lives to save you. He ever lives to intercede for you. He ever lives, and no one, no one can change that destiny through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I close with these scriptures. Jeremiah 29, 11, many of you know it very well. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you a future and a hope, an expected end, a destiny. And when that comes from God, there's no disturbing it. Ephesians, just as he chose him before the foundation of the world, what? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Boy, I'll take that destiny from beginning to end. And finally, this passage that I've read many times, I love it. It captures All that Paul talked about, the gospel, chapters 1 through 7, and he says, okay, now let's get to chapter 8 where there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin. That's not up there yet. He says, what shall I say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, a lot of people can be against us. The devil is certainly against us. The world is against us. We can be against ourselves. Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not notice with him free to give us all things? 
Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died furthermore is also risen. He's even at the right hand of God making intercession for us. He's not condemning us. Who shall separate us from love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As in, for your sakes, we are killed all the This life isn't easy. This journey in Egypt is not easy. It's got a lot of things. But God is for us, and God is, is going to continue to be with us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or, as it says there, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Yeah, it's written, we are killed all along. Yet, but yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who what? Loved us. For I am persuaded, Paul was persuaded, Joseph was persuaded, our destiny should persuade us that neither, I am persuaded that, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers except present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any, if you forgot anything, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate me from the love of Christ which is in Christ, from, from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus Lord. I say amen. Amen. <laughs> I close with this quote from Rabbi Zacharias. There is no greater discovery than seeing God as the author of your destiny. There is no greater discovery than seeing God as the author of your destiny. (laughs) The events that happened to Christ were God bringing to a complete work, finished, whereby we have a destiny that's guaranteed by God. Would you bow your heads? I want to certainly this morning give anyone that might be here an opportunity to respond to the gospel. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father is in heaven. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. In other words, if you don't want Jesus, he's not going to force himself on you. But he says, if you confess me before men. And the gospel simply says, Jesus died on a cross Because you needed forgiveness. I needed forgiveness by a holy God. And so he put on him all the sins of the world on that cross. And there Jesus paid the penalty that he did not have. He did not owe. He paid it for you and for me. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And through the cross, when he died on that cross, he had you in mind. He had a destiny promised to you by you coming to him and saying, please, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I need forgiveness. And your death, your blood shed, was satisfied the penalty before a holy God. And I need my sins forgiven. I need forgiveness from you, God, through Jesus. You come and you confess that. And then, so please, forgive me of my sins and give me eternal life. It's you bowing before Jesus and saying, I desire that relationship of eternal life. And so what we've done, what I'd like to do this morning, I haven't done in a while, but I'm going to do it this morning. I want to ask you to raise up your hand and say, that's me. Now, if you're watching, you can do this in the quietness of your home. Just say, I want to receive Jesus' forgiveness. I want to receive him to be my Savior, my Lord, today. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand and say, that's me. 
That's what I need. We're just praying for another moment. Now, as we're doing that, because no one's raised their hand, which is, I hope, a really good sign. Is that, is that a hand up here, brother? Are you raising your hand? Okay, God bless you. So there's, there's raising your hand, and you're doing that before God, not in, in a sense, not before us, but yet you're confessing Jesus. Most important decision you'll ever make. It's the decision between life and death, my friend. So the second thing I'd like to do is just to, for you to just stand up. And we're, we're praying right now. Just if you, if you have your hand up, would you just stand up right there? Good for you. Thank God. And then if we can have someone meet him at that table, if you would walk up to that table, my friend, someone will be there to go through the gospel with you and pray with you. So you just walk up there. Greg, would you meet him there? So if you don't mind, as you walk up to that table, we're going to pray for you, I'm going to pray for you, and we're going to then give it up for you because something happened today of eternal significance. So, Lord, we thank you for this, yes. our brother. And I pray, Lord, you assure him right now you can go up to that table, give him peace that he's done what he knows he needs to do before you, not us, but before you. And so as we stand for this final song, would you give it up to the Lord for what happened here just now? Yes. Please stand.